Hello, welcome to Central Valley Physicians Podcast. Today we are here with Dr. Mattel. She's a rheumatologist in town and we are going to talk about osteoarthritis. Welcome doctor, how are you? Well, I'm good. Thank you so much, Nicole, for having me on the show here. I'm so happy that, you know, we can talk so much about arthritis, which is one of the really common diseases that affects really everybody. Nobody can really escape some form of arthritis. So so thank you for having me today. Yeah, I'm excited too. I mean, I, I always tell people when I when I have physicians in here and I'm talking to them, it's, it's you know, it's a little... Um, for my own health on one end, but I definitely want the community to hear about things. So, so I'm anxious to talk to you. So I guess my first question would be, um, you know, what is osteoarthritis? Yeah, so, you know, actually, this is a great topic to talk because we're getting into the fall and the winter season. So people who have arthritis are going to be able to predict the cold days. They're going to be able to tell when it's going to rain. So so really, arthritis can flare up in the winter time. So I'm glad we're talking this. Um, so osteoarthritis is a slowly progressive joint disorder that causes thinning of the cartilage or wearing off of the cartilage. And cartilage is really like a cushion at the end of the joints that can kind of thin out and start off symptoms of arthritis with pain and stiffness. So, you know, you say that, that you can predict the weather with your arthritis. Is, is, do you, is everybody eventually going to get arthritis? I mean, it's not, it's not something you can prevent, right? Yeah, so, um, you know, osteoarthritis is commonly also called wear and tear arthritis. So as we all advance in age, there's obviously going to be some degree of wear and tear in our joints, which is kind of hard to escape because as we use it, we're going to wear off some cartilage there. But, you know, it's just not limited to, to aging. There's, there's more to it. It's also related to um, how much we use them. For example, competitive sports or, you know, athletes and people in certain professions um, who have a lot of physical demanding jobs like constructions, housekeeping, or, you know, when you're doing a lot of physical work, um, then it certainly does put more stress on the joints and cartilage. You know, so, you know, I automatically go to and it could be because I feel it, <laughs> um, your knees, and I'm guessing your hips, what other joints are typically affected by, by osteoarthritis? So osteoarthritis will typically affect our weight-bearing joints, which is our hip, you know, knee joints, also the spine, the thoracolumbar and sacral spine. Um, you know, there's, there could be disc problems or bone spurs growing there. So all that is part of osteoarthritis. And osteoarthritis still like can go into the hands. So you can get small deforming hands and then you can also get um, a bunion, you know, kind of like that big toe which gets protruding. So osteoarthritis can go into those joints. And sometimes osteoarthritis can go into some non-weight-bearing areas. For example, shoulders, elbows, wrists. And that is usually secondary to some different process. Um, for example, most common trauma, if somebody's injured or somebody's a competitive swimmer and they use their shoulder muscles a lot, you know, rotator cuff muscles get tears. And that once that injury process starts, then osteoarthritis secondarily can set in. So it's pretty much, it's, it's all your joints, but it just depends on what type of activities you have on a regular basis. And this, this type of arthritis, is, is it the same as rheumatoid arthritis or is it different? 
Yeah, that's actually a great question because I get this asked a lot in my clinic from patients and even their family members. They kind of sometimes look at post, you know, the posters and look at their hands and they're worried, am I going to get crooked or what's going to happen? So osteo and rheumatoid arthritis are very different processes. There's a very distinct pathology involved in rheumatoid arthritis. It's a systemic inflammatory process. You know, there's inflammation that, that happens at a very systemic level. So the whole body is inflamed. There's inflammation that starts off within the lymph node system. So the lymphatic and immune system is where all the inflammation starts. And our T cells, you know, they're helping to fight infection as well as B cells. So they get really active. Once they're active, the B cells are the cells that form antibodies that help fight infection. But in rheumatoid arthritis, the immune system is kind of like confused. It's kind of like misbehaving. So these B cells produce autoantibodies. That means they are directed against the body and they're not recognizing self from non-self. So they go in and attack joints and they can go and attack your eyes, your lungs, your heart, kidneys, nerves. So it's a very systemic process. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So and the reason I ask about rheumatoid is I had a friend recently diagnosed with osteoarthritis, but now she's being told she has rheumatoid arthritis. So how, now, how is that possible? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, like, it's very sad, but it's true that having one arthritis doesn't prevent you from having another one. So you can still have osteoarthritis, and you can still get rheumatoid, and you can still get gout on top of that. So it's, it's still possible to get different forms of arthritis. When I was working with the veterans population, it was very common to see gout, rheumatoid, psoriatic, and different manifestations of arthritis in the same person. So um, it's really important to know which arthritis they have because treatment is slightly different okay. for every arthritis. So how, you know, if someone thinks that they're having, you know, joint pains or they think that they have a, a form of arthritis, how, how is that actually diagnosed? So um, osteoarthritis, or for that matter, any form of arthritis, the best way, in my opinion, to diagnose it is with patient history. So really talking to the patient and listening to them because they know themselves the best. That's what I always believe, and they'll tell you what they have. They know which joints bother them, and they know exactly what brings it on. They can tell you like where it's swelling and what's happening in which joint, what's really limiting. Usually with my history, I will try to get an assessment of their quality of life because that really helps in treatment and options and management options later on. Because patients will say that, you know, this is what is limited. And sometimes they're not able to do their basic activities of daily living. For example, dressing and, you know, holding a spoon, some very simple things. All that sets off depression and also kind of tells the provider or the physician how severe it is. And, you know, where is the goal, where we want to meet each other. So the history is the most important thing. Now, there's other things like clinical exam. The exam will tell you which joints are involved and if there's any swelling or bogginess or there's warmth, and then if there's any deformities that are going on. The, the x-rays are also a really good tool. X-rays are a very simple test, but they tell us best about bone structure and the joints. Radiologists are really experts. They can read changes of osteoarthritis, rheumatoid, psoriatic. They have very distinct manifestations, and they cause distinct kind of features on x-rays. So really, all these tools are helpful. That's amazing. So you mentioned, you mentioned arthritis in the eye. So you're saying that, I mean, how would somebody necessarily know that they had arthritis, a form of arthritis in their eyes? Because you, you don't really feel, I guess you could feel pain, but I mean, 
you know, you use those eyes back and forth. There's no tissue there, right? Well, I guess there is, but... Yeah, so there, there's no joint, really. But with rheumatoid arthritis, it's a very systemic process. So it's, it's you know, we commonly get referrals from eye doctors or even lung doctors that there's rheumatoid changes in the eyes and lungs. So they want us to check the patient and see if there's rheumatoid arthritis going on in the joints. So once it attacks the eye lining, it can cause a lot of inflammation. And the scary part is it, causes, it can cause the patient to lose vision. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then the, the eye doctors, you know, they, they do a great job by, by calming down that inflammation and putting the fire out with the prednisone, which is a form of steroid. So that kind of uh, temporarily patches the problem. But really, if you look at and think about the process and pathogenesis, it's systemic. There's inflammation going on everywhere. So they need um, help from rheumatologists to kind of help calm that whole body inflammation down which also helps the eyes, the lungs, you know, and different other organ systems. So, you know, what are some of the risk factors of um, osteoarthritis? I mean, you know, because you you mentioned that arthritis is going to happen in most people. And, you know, besides your aches and pains, what are some of the other risk factors um, that can be modified? So um, the most important modifiable risk factor for osteoarthritis is actually the BMI or the body weight. So American um, Orthopedic Association recommends a BMI 25 or less. So if you're 25 or less, you know, there's chances that you can prevent extra stress um, on the weight-bearing joints. And there was a study that showed that losing 10 pounds over 10 years, so, you know, it's, there's, it's a slow and gradual weight loss mm-hmm. over 10 years, you can decrease your risk of knee osteoarthritis by 50%. That's, that's a substantial decreased risk. And um, we know that from physics that by losing one pound, you can decrease four times the stress on the weight-bearing joints. So weight loss is the number one modifiable risk factor for osteoarthritis. I think that's the number one uh, risk factor in improvement for every health disease in the world. Yeah. Good diet and, and weight loss. You know, so for those that know me, they know that I wear... I wear a lot of heels. I mean, I think my flip-flops have two-inch heel on them. You know, is that something to – because I feel in my knees. I feel – you know, I'm not – I consider myself on the younger side, um, but I notice when I wear heels on a regular level and I'm climbing stairs, you know, because I'm picking up that extra couple inches, you know, is that something that if I stopped wearing heels that my knees would probably start feeling better? So um, it's a very good question. So it's, it's just not, not the heels for the knees, but also for your ankle joints and your hip joints. When you wear heels, you know, you're, you're changing the biomechanics of the gait, how you walk, and how you put pressure on different weight-bearing joints, and that also includes your ankle joint. And there is data from small studies that shows that wearing heels, especially the pointed ones, but even with the wedge and more flat kind of heels, you are putting extra stress on the joints, and you can set yourself up for early arthritis. So um, it's very common, you know, it's a, when I was, I mean, I used to train, I was in my training in New York City, you know, I would see like women all the time carrying two pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. So they'll be wearing their, their tennis shoes all the time in the subways, and then in the purse, they would have their pencil heels. So it's kind of like you switch back and forth. So that might be the smart strategy to do, kind of switch back and forth. Yeah. If you know you're going to be walking too much, then you might want to get back into more comfortable shoes. Yeah, and it's crazy. I don't know why we do it. I don't know why women do it, but I, I am the worst at it. I think it's it's a daily thing. Um, but I always wondered, you know, because I do. I feel it, you know, my mostly in my knees, but 
I don't know. So what about what about risk factors for uh, rheumatoid arthritis? I mean, is is there uh, modifications for that? Because since it's more systemic, um, you know, how is that treated? And is it is it is it I guess is it easier to manage? So rheumatoid arthritis, you know, um, the most important modifiable risk factor is smoking. So there's a lot of data that shows that smoking causes certain changes in protein structure in the body, and one of them is citrullination, so it modifies the protein completely and changes the, the amino acid structure. So there, there's more citrullination, and this citrullinated peptides is what, what we check in the blood. So it's a blood marker for rheumatoid arthritis. And then in people who are more genetically predisposed, they tend to, um, from citrullination, they tend to form autoantibodies and damage the joints. So smoking is, is the most important modifiable risk factor. Okay. Is, is arthritis, is it, um, can you inherit it? I mean, is it something in your genes that you could, like if your grandparents or your parents had it, that it's hereditary? Yes, certainly. You know, rheumatoid arthritis especially, there is a hereditary genetic focus that can go from generation to the next. So there is a certain degree of hereditary um, component involved for rheumatoid arthritis. And even for some severe forms of osteoarthritis, there's a familial tendency. So um, usually I'll ask my patients in the clinic, especially if they have osteoarthritis in their hands, that they either do a lot of physical work or grandma or grandpa, someone had hands looking like that. Even for like getting a bunion, that's usually in the family. If you know mom or dad or grandma had a bunion in the toe, then it's very likely you're going to get it too. So there is a component, genetic component involved. That's crazy to think that. I mean, and I and I guess you could always look at their lifestyle too, because I mean, we come from, you know, a, a, the prior generation to us. You know, they didn't know smoking was bad for you. You know, they they use their hands for work a lot more and and their body for a lot more physical labor than than we do these days. Um, you know, how is it treated? How are both of these these types of arthritis? Is there a treatment out there? I know there's probably some form of medication. Um, you know, what what's your, what's your route when you when you have a new patient that comes in, and you've they've diagnosed with with a form of arthritis. So um, the most important thing that usually I will do with patients is I try to get a sense of where they are in terms of their quality of life. For example, if it's osteoarthritis especially, I really want to know like um, what they can and they cannot do. And is there like a certain hobby that they would like to get to, which they're not able to? Because all of that is really important in terms of management. And it once, you know, you're not able to do some very basic things like um, dressing yourself, you know, wearing your own clothes or even holding a spoon and being able to use your hands you know, then you set off depression and dependence on other family members. And that's, that's really challenging. So we really want to assess their quality of life. Sometimes patients will tell me, well, I would really like to continue back knitting. I would really like to go back to quilting to my ladies club and quilt, you know, or I would just really want to get be able to go to my grandson's game. So, you know, we're really looking at, at goals that patients want to achieve, especially with osteoarthritis. Because once the cartilage is worn off, it's very difficult and practically impossible to, you know, regrow it. There's really no medications that's going to cause the cartilage to reproduce and regrow. So there is going to be some degree of joint stiffness and pain. And we're really looking to improve uh, quality of life function um, with osteoarthritis. Okay. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of a, a, you know, is there, I guess my next question would be, is there a way to maybe 
stop the progression. Like if you know early onset that you're overusing a joint with the exception of obviously the obvious walking and exercises or something that you can um, prevent um, the wearing down of the cartilage? Yeah, these are like really good questions. So um, so there's, there's actually... Um, so American College of Rheumatology and the American Orthopedic Association recommends exercise, which is moderate intensity exercise, aerobic exercise program, as, the, as very strongly recommended to help improve joint function because you're really also increasing muscle strength and balance. What happens with arthritis is once there's pain and stiffness, then patients will shy away from using that joint more. And over time, it's just not that cartilage that's worn. There's also swelling around the joint capsule. The ligaments and tendons tend to deteriorate. And I've seen a lot of times there's muscle atrophy over time because you're not using your muscles. So we really want... um, to help patients to keep exercising. So um, a moderate or a low-intensity aerobic exercise program is, is the most important thing. It's, it's actually the number one recommendation. Um, and, you know, doing aquatic exercises. So water aerobics is great, too, for muscles. So these form of exercises go a long way to help preserve the muscle function and the strength and stability in the joints. So this is what really is recommended non-pharmacologic-wise. So tell people, what would you tell your patient as far as what type of exercise, how long, how often? Because I think that this is, um, you know, diet and exercise, keeping lean, um, a lean weight is always the conversation that I have during all of these podcasts. But, you know, my perception of, of aerobic exercise is going to be very different than obviously my parents. So what would you recommend somebody that, you know, is in their... Um, you know, you know, late sixties, early seventies. What type of exercise would you recommend? And then somebody that that's in their you know thirties and forties that isn't necessarily, um, you know, a marathon runner or somebody that works out every day. Yeah. So you know, sometimes we think like uh, no pain, no gain, but that really doesn't work with arthritis. So if you hurt, we really want you to stop and give your body a chance to heal. And so it's it's really that low-intensity aerobic program that's really helpful. So simple things like walking. And um, what I recommend, and, and there's really no data for arthritis, but there are some pilot studies done here and there at Harvard that, that really have looked at doing exercises in a pleasant atmosphere. So I, I personally feel that if patients do things that they really enjoy, that has a healing effect on arthritis. So I will tell my patients to go and spend time with your grandkids, go and volunteer in their classes, do holiday projects, go to their soccer game, or you know take them out for shopping. When they're with their grandkids, it just releases great endorphins. And this is Basically, my own personal belief, there's no data here, but I think it releases great endorphins. Looking at your grandkids enjoying the little things they do, that it, all those endorphins cause decreased substance P and pain, that it really elevates all the, the positive feedback for the, for the body. So um, a low-intensity program, so simple walking, if you're walking your pets, or just go out and have a walk with, with a close friend. And you want to really enjoy that walk. So any exercise you do, it should not be like a checklist that, you know, I have to do this. No, you want to enjoy it. So doing things in the nature, outdoors, and we're plenty blessed here in the Central Valley. And this time of the year, the weather is really good. So going outdoors, enjoying fall colors, being in the nature, all that is going to give you so much positive energy in the body that it decreases um, your appreciation of pain 
all that helps with arthritis. So any form of exercise is good as long as you enjoy doing it. That's good. really the key. Okay. So, you know, are there um, any types of supplements out there that could help you? You know, you you mentioned pain and, and um, Tylenol or something that could get away for like the day-to-day pain or something like that. But are there additional supplements to make sure that you're not taking some type of uh, – um, over-the-counter pain medication on a regular basis? What's your recommendation? Yeah, so if we look at evidence-based data, that suggests that um, using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, like, you know, the Motrin, Aleve, the Celebrex, those kind of medications, as well as Tramadol, has, a, has an effect in decreasing pain and joint stiffness. But in reality, sometimes it's a challenge for patients to take those because the non-steroidal medications have their own side effects. People can get, you know, ulcers, you know, and they can get kidney disease or they can bump up your blood pressure. So I don't personally recommend them as long-term management. I will usually tell my patients to use them on their bad days or just as needed and do frequent drug holidays. Now, Tylenol has not shown to have any evidence in improving pain and functions, but patients will take it, you know, from time to time. And then there's a lot of supplements out there in the market, like um, glucosamine, chondroitin, sulfate. Um, The data shows really no benefit. But personally, I've seen patients notice improvement in pain. So I usually do it more conditionally. I let patients make that decision, that they can try supplements on for a couple of months. If they do notice um, a significant improvement in pain and stiffness, they should probably continue it. And um, I, I can tell you from my own personal story, like my mentor, um, you know, he trained at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he loved playing tennis. He was a rheumatologist, and he's actually from Fresno, but, you know, he's back right now in Iowa. So um, <laughs> it was interesting. Like, he has bad osteoarthritis in his knees, and he loved playing tennis. He, he used to take chondroitin, and he said, I know there's no data, but it works for me. Mm-hmm. I can still play tennis. I'm not so much in pain and stiffness. So the way I was kind of told is it's really case by case. Every patient is very different. So those are more like conditional and case by case basis that we kind of decide. And um, in terms of other supplements, you know, one, one of my favorite supplements is the turmeric. So I usually recommend turmeric in a lot of patients. Turmeric is actually a spice that's traditionally used in the um, East Asian cooking, especially Indian cooking. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's that bright orange yeah. color that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it can stain. And a lot of times patients will ask me how to take it. So I do do kind of turmeric health education classes from time to time in my clinic, but uh, turmeric, there is a lot of evidence. So there's data behind it that it can block cyclooxygenase 2 enzyme, which is what Celebrex and some non-steroidal medications target. So it does decrease pain and stiffness in the body. And um, it's very safe. So there's really no side effects. It's very safe to take. It does help um, with decreasing pain and stiffness. And again, it's a supplement. So, you know, these are not FDA-approved medications. So I just want to tell the audience that, you know, this is something you still want to make sure you tell your doctor that you're going to try. And kind of, you know, whenever you're taking any supplement, make sure your healthcare provider is aware. Yeah, and, and, you know, I have my own turmeric supplement that I use in my clinic, which is specifically dose for arthritis patients. It's very safe to use up to two grams a day for rheumatoid or osteoarthritis. So I have a supplement that I have in my clinic, and it does have um, some black pepper, which is another spice, and that helps to absorb turmeric better. 
So I've seen some great results. So, you know, you're welcome to go and look on the website and see um, more about that. So is it in a capsule format? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's a a capsule format. Um, And, you know, the the capsule we have is very natural. So it doesn't have any additives. It's made of rice cellulose and rice paper, basically. So if if you're recommending, I mean, can you still get the the benefits of turmeric from if it's in your food? Yes, actually, this is a great question. So, so it's, I usually recommend patients do both. Okay. Because the best way to take turmeric would be in, in your food. But just kind of to remember that turmeric is not very, um, very kind of, you know, when it comes to taste, it's very bitter. Mm-hmm. So it's not very easy to just sprinkle and eat. It's not very uh, tasting. So it's not very appealing to eat it like that. So you really have to cook it well for your taste buds to really accept it. So that's kind of, uh, you know, a challenge. But there's different things like turmeric tea and, you know, different um, kinds of turmeric drinks like golden milk that you can do. And, um, you know, I encourage the audience to look on my website. We've got recipes for that. And um, there's um, also, you know, on my Holistic Center website, we've got a lot more data on benefits of turmeric. Let's talk about that for a little bit, um, because I do want you to come back and talk about your holistic approach to, to some of the medicine. But um, So you, your website, what's your website address? Um, so it's Moksha Holistic Center, and it's um, mokshaholisticcenter.com. And we'll put that on the, the podcast when we, when we listed a link to it. And then um, some of your other, you know, you mentioned recipes on there. Now, these are recipes that are going to include the turmeric to, to help with joint pain. But is, um, what else do some of the recipes do for, do for you? So um, if you talk in terms of like arthritis, um, there's really no specific diet that works for, for arthritis. But in general, eating healthy and, you know, eating food that's rich in antioxidants, you know, it's, it's actually a good idea. Um, if you talk about rheumatoid arthritis and some of the autoimmune disorders that can cause arthritis, then I can certainly tell the audience that, you know, you want to have a diet that's low in red meat. Mm-hmm. Red meat causes more stress on the immune system. And um, this, there's data for different autoimmune disorders that red meat can increase your risk of a lot of um, problems in the GI tract. So that can increase your risk not only of different forms of um, inflammatory disorders, but also cancers. So decreasing your intake of red meat has um, shown to be beneficial to prevent inflammatory process in the body. Okay. So, you know, in closing here, so what's the best, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you if somebody feels that they have, um, you know, these joint pains and they want to be checked out for arthritis? Where's your, where's your office located? So um, we're located um, on Maple and Herndon. And, um, you know, my office is actually, um, I work with my husband, who's also a physician and is a gastroenterologist. So um, the name is Mithal Gastroenterology and Rheumatology. So we provide both services. It's actually a comprehensive center for gut and immune health. Um, you know, really, um, in as an autoimmune disease specialist, I feel like the your your gut or your intestines is actually your mini brain and you've got 70 percent of your immune system right there so what you eat has a huge impact on how your immune system reacts and shapes throughout the life so we've got a comprehensive um, gut and immune health center on maple and herndon and the address is uh, 7045 north maple avenue suite 101 you've put you you've said something that's really caught my my interest is you've put it together on how these two specialties come together to work and to help 
patients. So it's a really, like you said, very comprehensive. I would have never thought, hey, I got a GI doctor and a rheumatologist, but it makes complete sense once you put the two of them together. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Some One of the um, uh, pharmaceutical representatives, he happened to notice this and he said, wow, how come you both like like are together? And I said, yeah, we, we knew about that. That's why we got married. Yeah, <laughs> we were kind of planning. It but. worked out. Yeah, you guys make <laughs> a good team. I, I appreciate uh, that you, we have you here in town and I'm glad that you're here. What's the What's your office telephone number? So the number is 559-900-4013. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in today. This is great. And, and you know, it, it seemed like we blew the, through this pretty quick, but there was a lot of good information. And I, like I said, I'd love for you to come back and talk about some of your other, um, the other things that you, you're doing in your office and then also get your husband back here as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, wishing everybody the best of health this coming year. Thank, thank you. you.